Father, we respect your name tonight. We honor your name in this place. And tonight we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here as it is in heaven. You are our Father. You are enthroned in heaven. Would you reform our hearts into hearts of honor and respect? Would you reform this house into a house of honor and respect? We hallow your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in this house as it is in heaven. Would you give us every day what we need, not what we want? Would you forgive us our many, many trespasses? And Lord, would you give us the strength and the courage and the humility to forgive those that have trespassed against us? Would you liberate us from grievances? Would you liberate us from grudges held? Would you liberate us from hatred and jealousy and envy? Would you deliver us from all evil? Would you lead us in paths of righteousness? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the strength now and forever. We honor you, Lord. We honor you. Amen and amen. Praise God. What a wonderful presence of the Lord indeed is here. I'm going to start off tonight just for a few moments and give thanks. I'm going to thank Heinrich and the team for inviting me back every year that I'm with you. Yes, it's true. 1996 was the first time I came and spent time with you. There were just a few of you at that time, and I had hair. It was a different time. I was 30 pounds lighter. But I'm so grateful for the journey. How many of you know it does get better with the Lord? Amen. So much has happened to me during the last two years that I haven't been with you so much. God is just doing an extraordinary job, work in our midst. About three years ago, I took leadership of a seminary that was in somewhat trouble. And um, if I knew what was coming, I would have said no, <laughs> but I didn't have the wisdom. And I said yes. And tonight, I'm going to share with you somewhat of a personal message of what the Lord has done in our midst. In the last two years, our seminary that was struggling a little. And just so that you know, theological education in America is in trouble. We are experiencing the greatest shakeup in probably 300 years. Seminaries tell us that they have lost 50% of their students in five years. Less and less young people are coming to say, I want to go forth in ministry. Well, folks, in the last two years, we have seen the opposite. Our school has doubled in numbers by the grace of God. 
The Spirit of the Lord has been so heavy in our school that we, we start every single day with prayer and repentance. Pretty much what's going on here, I just felt right at home. This is where we've been living for three years. On a personal note, God has been doing an incredible work in my family. I have an 18-year-old son. He's the only one. One God, one wife, one son. And... Um, <laughs> But two cats in the dark, we didn't get that right. And I do want to say to you that we were not sure whether we would survive him at some point. And although we have tried to bring him up in the ways of the Lord, I have made every parenting mistake in the book. And about a year ago, God took a hold of my son in the most extraordinary way. He is now what we would call in America a fresh person. That means he's a first year. <laughs> We're not allowed to say freshman anymore, apparently. <clears throat> uh, but he's a fresh person at university, and all that he's interested in is prayer and the Word of God. Uh, it's been so extraordinary to watch. I snuck into a service the other night. They first region is a strange place. At time, we have chapel, which is normally on Wednesday. And then on Thursday nights, we have unchapel. Now, I don't know what unchapel is, but apparently it's not chapel. And uh, faculty is not allowed at unchapel. And it was my son's first unchapel. Here's a kid that for all of his life would not pray in front of people. Just so shy. And I'm going to say to you, I watched from the back secretly. I was not allowed in. I saw the Holy Spirit ascend on my son, and he started to run around and pray for people, and people just lying everywhere, and he gets up early in the morning and spends time with the Lord, and God is doing such an extraordinary work. Tonight, however, for a few moments, I want to speak about how do we repair the breach? How do we repair a broken house? This is a message that lays heavily on my heart the moment that I landed in Cape Town. I don't know how many of you are like me. I'm a little slow at times. God often has to tell me the same thing over and over and over and over again. This, let me quickly tell you a story about this. I, I, um, it's a book I hate. It's a little, it's a tiny little book. It's a commentary on Genesis 22 written by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. I hate the book. The book is called Fear and Trembling. Yes. Over the last 20 years, I have counted 32 people have given me this book. <laughs> 32. And I'm not kidding. I have every copy. It's now so ridiculous that when people give me this book, I can't even pretend to be happy. <laughs> One of my nephews came to visit us in the States, and it's Christmas time, and we open our gifts, and what is there for me? Fear and trembling. This horrendous, terrible book. This book haunts me. And so obviously, I am slow. Later on, I will quote from this book, and you'll realize why this book is so important in my life. But as I landed in Cape Town, the message that I prepared was changed as I waited for my luggage. And so tonight I'm going to be very brave and share this with you. 
Jesus said that a good teacher takes out of his treasures all the new things. I'm going to start tonight with a text that you might be really well familiar with. I do want to apologize just for a moment. My calling primarily is that of a teacher. And I am sometimes what might be called a reluctant prophet. Um, We'll talk about that just for a moment as well. It's always dangerous to give a microphone to a teacher, right? What's the problem? (laughs) We have a lot to say. (laughs) My son, one time I caught him. He had a good friend at home, and he said to his friend, he 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 said, James, don't ask my dad any question. We will be here the whole day. There's always a lecture waiting. So I'm going to apologize for about five, six minutes right at the beginning of this sermon. Folks, there'll be a little little bit of a teaching, a little bit of information, a little bit of historical context here. Forgive me for that. Um, I did ask Pastor Heinrich if we can have a test at the end of this. He said no. So I am trusting the Lord to put the test there. But if you brought your Bibles, I wonder if you will be so kind as to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6, and we will read eight verses from this text. When the Lord asked me to speak on this, and this was my response, I sounded like an 18-year-old, and I said, really? (laughs) Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to just start with the very first verse, and then I'll unpack it a little bit for you. The title of the sermon is How to Repair the Breach, How to Repair the House. And Isaiah speaks here, chapter 6 and verse 1, and I'm obviously reading from the ESV. God bless you all. If you have a different Bible, and I'm checking, we will be praying. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Let me read that to you again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Let me start off and say to you that this text starts at one of the darkest times in the history of the nation of Judah. Who was this King Uzziah and why is his death so important? I'll come back to this in a moment, but let me say this to you. Often, great difficulties in a communication or a church or an organization can lead us deeper into the presence of the Lord. Sometimes difficulties can drive us to our knees. Uzziah started off great. He was made king when he was 16 years old. He served for 52 years. And in the first part of his reign, things are going extraordinarily well. Uzziah is actually mentioned in the annals, in the writings of other nations. He is mentioned as a good, a wise king, also a king of great innovation. Uzziah, in actual fact, interesting enough, designed two machines, and Scripture speaks of this as well, that would sit on the walls of Jerusalem. One that would shoot arrows and another one that would shoot boulders at the enemies. As a military leader, he was untouched. Initially, he conquered the Canaanites. He conquered the Ammonites. 
And he was known as far afield as Egypt. We have him mentioned in the writings of the Egyptians. He's an extraordinary king. And both Chronicles and Kings will tell us that he was a man after God's own heart. But towards the end of his reign, something happened. And what seemed to have been a very small thing changed the destiny of the nation. Uzziah made an extraordinary mistake. What happened? He walked into the temple one day and decided to take up the role of a high priest. He stepped into a role which God never called him to be. Not only uh, do the books of Kings and Chronicles speak of it, even the Jewish historian Josephus knew of this. Josephus tells us that what happened with Uzziah is that envy got a hold of his heart. Envy. And he stepped into the holy place and he started to burn incense to the Lord, which was only the role of the high priest. And the high priest at that time, a man by the name of Azariah, with 80 other priests, stormed into the temple and confronted him. And as they confronted him, God's judgment fell. It was a major earthquake. Uh, interesting enough, just about six years ago, they found evidence of this earthquake. That earthquake was so great, and I want you to hear what I'm saying now, that the temple was broken. One of the walls came down. The house was broken. And Josephus tells us that the sunlight got into a place where sunlight should not shine. And as the rays of the sun fell on Uzziah, he was struck down with leprosy immediately. His face was disfigured. The Hebrew word that is used here particularly speaks of the fact that his whole face became twisted. And for the next 11 years, he was separated from the rest of the nation in exile. And when he finally died, he was buried far away from all the other kings as an eternal sign. Now, you might stop for a moment and say, what is so terrible about, about what Uzziah did? Folks, there's nothing more powerful in this world than the choice of God. The original sin of Satan, the rabbis tell us, was not pride. I used to teach that for years and years. The rabbis say to us that the original sin of Satan was that of envy. And that there is no greater sin than the sin of envy. And church, what is the sin of envy? Envy is very simply when we look at what God has done in somebody else and we want that for us. That's the original sin of Satan. Church father by the name of Clement of Rome, very early on in, in Rome, around about the turn of the first century, this is a man that saw Peter being crucified. He wrote a number of letters. And this is what he says. He says, church, be careful. 
is only one weapon Satan has to destroy you. And it is demonic envy. Clement goes on in one of his letters, he says, the first murder to occur in the world was committed because of spiritual envy. Cain looked at his brother and saw that that sacrifice was accepted and he turned around and killed and killed his brother. Church, I want to say to you that today, this is the reason very often why churches struggle. What we think of as ambition for God is often just self-seeking envy. Actual fact, the apostle James in his letter, the brother of Jesus, says the following, James 3, 16. He says, for where there is envy and self-seeking, there is confusion. And listen to what the Greek says, and every evil spirit. Why did God take this so seriously? Envy attracts the demonic. It's the original sin of Satan. And what happens here is that Uzziah steps in and he wants to take the place of another. And God is so offended by this that he shakes the whole ground. He breaks the temple. And for the next 11 years, it's a really dark time. And if you read Isaiah, you will know that the first five chapters contain prophecies, but none of them for Judah. He operates as a prophet for other nations. But in chapter 6, something happens. And tonight for a few moments, I want to talk to you about how do we repair a house that is broken. Isaiah goes back to the scene of the crime, the temple, where this happens. Now, folks, what does envy look like in churches today? Firstly, the unnatural, ungodly, demonic competitiveness amongst ministers and churches. We live in a very strange age. Social media allows us now to build a bigger persona than who we truly are. We can easily lie and make things look much bigger than what they are. Not difficult. What does envy look like in the church? In its most extreme form is, is when we are envious of God's glory. I want to applaud our worship team over here. I'm such a fan. And that's precisely what's wrong. This worship team is extraordinary. But folks, I want to just stop for a moment and say to you, in America today, we are so confused. We cannot tell the difference between a concert and a worship experience. Our worship leaders are rock stars. Rock stars. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a conference, and as my gift would allow me, I made trouble for myself. I have a gift, as my wife says, to ask the wrong thing at the right time. 
And if you know me very well, I have no gift for chit-chat. So my wife will always say, too quick, too deep. Because I just want to go right there to the bottom. My son asked me about three days ago, he says, he says, Papi, I, I, God's called me, I know. I said, I says, but I'm afraid that he might call me to pastor. And he says, what does a pastor do? No, you should hear my, my explanation, right? It was late at night. I, I, this is what I said to him. I said, 80% of what pastors do is this, stop it. And the other 20% is go away. You know, <laughs> those are the 2%. Do you understand why I'm not called to pastor, all right? <laughs> Need a bit more compassion. So I'm at a conference, and there's a very well-known worship team in the green room. And so I asked an innocent question, I thought. I said, well, how did you all come together? And they said, well, there was, you know, a call that was given out. There were rehearsals, and we had to give full body shots, pictures of ourselves. So they were put together based on how they looked. And of course, this, this is where my gift really stepped in. And I said, so you, all of you, all of you are nothing but Christian eye candy. Huh? Right. <laughs> Pastor Heinrich, I was never invited back. I will tell you, and rightfully so. <laughs> I should have restrained my tongue. Envy today in, in its worst form is when we are envious of the glory belongs to God. How could we use the ministry as a platform for fame? How can we use the very instruments and gifts that we're supposed to worship God to draw attention to ourselves? I have mostly American students and for I so love, I love, love, love American, love Americans. And so grateful that I can spend time with Pastor Rick and Diane. Before the end of this weekend, I'm going to ask them to put their hands on my head and pray for me. But my students are really feisty. <laughs> they are very opinionated. And they often confront me about things that I'm not sure I should be confronted about. And I had a student just a week ago come and confront me about my Facebook page made an appointment through my assistant and said, I am here to speak to the dean about <clears throat> his Facebook page. And I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? I went and looked. He misunderstood. For the last number of years, I have taken pictures of myself on my Facebook page, always with my back towards the audience. And for those in the know will know that this is intentional. And what I'm trying to, to bring back is this sense, and I know my son says it's ridiculous, but the sense that, church, do you know that in the first 1,800 years of the church, worship leaders led worship with their back towards the audience to say, it's not this that's going on, it's this that is going on together. It's not about my ability to speak. It's not about my ability to sing. It's not about my ability to capture the imagination of people. And what happens during this time is that the nation of Judah, in the very center of worship, encounters the sin of demonic envy. 
And there's chaos, as James says, in every evil spirit. But the Lord brings Isaiah to bring the nation back. Church, more like ever before do we need Isaiah's in this world. I like the definition that Michael Card once gave for a prophet. What is a prophet? And this is what he said. He said, a prophet is a man or a woman who is able to recapture the imagination of God's people back to him. Not to ourselves, but to him. So what happens with Isaiah here? Let's just continue on and just read for a moment. I'm going to read all eight verses and then I'll unpack it for a moment. In the year that King Uzziah died, it's the end of judgment. Church, let me stop for a moment and say this to you again. Every tree that bears fruit will be pruned. But there's a season of pruning and then there's a season of fruit. And tonight as we worshiped, I heard this over and over and over again. Shofar, the season of pruning is over. There's a season of fruitfulness that you have not yet seen that is coming. We live in Virginia Beach and somebody said to me, you know, I don't know if you know this, but we have a hurricane at the moment in Virginia Beach as we speak. And so my family's without power, and there's lots of, lots of flooding in our area. And somebody said to me, well, is it going to flood where you are? And I said, no, we're in a non-flood area. So they said, elevate it. If you know anything about Virginia Beach, we only have one elevation, one little hill. It's called Mount Trashmore. Yes, yes, it is a landfall. That is the only elevation that we have. It's flat, 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 and it's forest area, which is a problem. Because here's here's one of the biggest problems that we have all of these trees, tall trees that are in very wet ground. And the moment that a storm comes, these trees tend to fall over. So I invite every year, well not invite, I pay this guy, he's called a tree doctor, to come and doctor my trees. He comes in and he trims all of my tall trees so that they will not fall on my house. And the one year I made the mistake of asking him to, to prune one of, well, to, to, to cut and, and prepare one of my prune to, trees. And church, I want to say to you, I came home and I was devastated. There was nothing left. Absolutely nothing left. I phoned him and I said, you've killed my tree. And he said to me, have you ever pruned a tree? I said, no, I have not. And so he said, all right, then let's just wait until spring arrives. Of course, that spring was full of fruit. But what happens here in Israel is that Isaiah steps forward in this year that King Uzziah died. And let's quickly continue reading it. He said, And I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, I I do want to say to you, although I love the ESV here, the translation is not best in this verse. Literally, the Hebrew says, they screamed to one another. 
They scream to one another. They proclaim to one another. And what is it that they proclaim? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Three things that I would like to highlight from this text. What broke the temple was the sin of envy. The Apostle Paul warns us against the sin. The Apostle Paul in one of his letters says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Church, do you know how different that is than than the way we operate with people today? Typically, before we meet somebody else, we already know we are better and we ask questions just to determine that this is indeed the truth. I work mostly with pastors. Folks, if you put pastors into the same room and listen to the questions that they ask, it's typically to determine who's the top dog, who's the greatest. The kind of questions that's asked, how big is your church? Uh, Do you travel internationally? Have you written any books? Are you on television? We ask all of these questions to determine how great and how magnificent we are. This is particularly true of men. Ladies, I don't need to tell you this, and men, you know this as well. We are competitive animals. If you put two men in a room, give them just a little bit of time, they will say, who can spit the furthest? (laughs) It gets much grosser, and it goes downhill very quickly from there. I'm speaking about Christian men, right? We want to compete in everything. My son and I... uh, By the way, I was told that I'm not allowed to tell any stories about him during this trip. I told him it's payback time. He informed me just about uh, six, seven weeks ago that not only am I fat, but I am obese. This is the word that he used, obese, yes. It gets much worse. He has an Instagram account where he took a picture of me and wrote the word obese. Can you imagine? So I said, everything is fair. (laughs) The stories will come back. Churches is the extraordinary thing here. We compete. My son and I play tennis twice a week. And even I struggle. I've realized now in the last two weeks, we are close to the place that he might win. (laughs) So I stopped the game. And I'm honest about it. I say to him, Jonathan, I'm not emotionally ready for this moment yet. Give me another week to pray. Give me another month to fast and I will be ready. But he's this, he's this close 
to beating me. Very difficult. Competitive. Church, I want to say to you today, as in Uzziah's time, in the time of Isaiah, where envy broke the temple of God. Today, envy is rife in the church. If envy was an Olympic sport, we would get all three medals. It's an extraordinary problem that we face. And why is it such a problem? Why is it so dangerous? I started off the sermon by saying to you, there's nothing more powerful than the choice of God. And the moment that we engage in envy, we are saying to God, I know better than you. We make ourselves the very enemy of God. Isaiah, however, by the Spirit of the Lord, walks into the house of God. And church, yes, I'm going to quickly just give you three points. You know, when I was trained to preach, I was always told, make three points in a poem. I don't have a poem today, but there are three points nonetheless. Here it is. Number one, the vision of God is the only antidote to envy. How do you deal with envy? You seek the vision of the Lord. And Isaiah, in the very place where the offense happened, he stands in that place and he sees the Lord. And church, what did he see about God? Listen to what the text says again. The text says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. There's nothing more powerful than to realize who's in charge and who is not. And what happens with Isaiah, he realizes once again who is enthroned in the temple, who is enthroned over all of this world. I will tell a story, another story about my son, but this is a good one. So I've watched the Lord take a hold of him. And for the last five years, every six months, he was going to do something different with his life. For a while, he was going to be a YouTuber, because apparently that is his thing, right? I was not aware of YouTube. I am now, unfortunately. <clears throat> not a great place, right? We can do something for the gospel, maybe, with it. I'm not sure yet. But there he is. He was going to be a YouTuber. And then he was going to be, of course, very importantly, He's going to be a photographer, and he's going to work for National Geographic. It's interesting. Every time he changed, it meant a lot of money, you know, because he needed the best equipment that money can buy. And as an only child, you can imagine all the sins that we have committed in spoiling this kid. But nonetheless, and about a year ago, he came into my office at home. I study at home, and he said, Papi, he said, I've decided what I must do. Listen to the language, must do. And so he declared to me that he was going to study biblical studies. I knew from before he was born when the Lord gave me his name. Our son is a miracle child. We were not able to have children. And the Lord gave us a promise and gave us his name and told me what he would do. 
And for all 17 years until that time, I never told him one word. And I remember I looked at him and I said, okay. And I went back to work. The moment that he left, I closed the door and I screamed. Right, you, I couldn't do it too visibly, too open, because, you know, sometimes it can move them in the wrong direction if you're too excited about things, right? <laughs> you know, I'm now at this age. I don't know if anybody's ever been there where breathing apparently is annoying. Sometimes he will say to me, oh, Bobby, can you just stop breathing? It's so annoying. <laughs> Any parent been there? Oh, God, help us all. But anyways, and he starts, and he, he starts and, what, and the question is, where did this all happen? A couple of years back, it's Pentecost Sunday. And I'm part of an extraordinary church. I'm part of a really kind of an interesting church. A church started by a Lutheran from South Dakota and a missionary Baptist from New Jersey. You cannot get more theologically apart. But they're both filled with the Spirit, so it's extraordinary. And it's Pentecost Sunday, and I'm preaching. And at the end, we are calling people up for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And my son walked up. And I knew I could not touch him. And our pastor, by the grace of God, stormed forward and prayed for him first. And the moment that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, this is the language that he uses. Now, he's young. He's just discovered Keith Green. So... If you know who Keith Green was, young prophet, very strong. And my son, my son says things that are a little bit too strong at the moment. Apart from the Instagram account about my fatness, which by the way now has been taken off by the, I'm very grateful. He has another Instagram account of Lutheran insults. I don't know if you know that Martin Luther had a gift to turn a phrase. Luther could insult in ways that nobody else could. Um, if you've ever researched it, I can quote a few. You know, um, you are as dumb as a piece of wood. You know, that's one of the things that Luther said to somebody. Another person, he said, you double prostitute of the Antichrist. Not just once, double. Right, that's a little strong. So my son collects Lutheran insults. I've asked him to take that down as well. Church, what changes us is if we can realize who's in charge. And my son, the language that he uses, he said to me two days ago, he went through a very difficult time. He broke up with his girlfriend a couple of days back. And beautiful girl, fantastic girl, loves the Lord, but not interested in ministry. And my son's heart is just for the Lord at the moment. Just for the moment. And he wants to run. And this is what he said to me. He said, and he was crying. He woke me up the night before I left at 3 o'clock in the morning with two questions. Knocked on my door. He came in and he woke me up, shook me, and he said to me, Are you sure there will be somebody else? Yes, Jonathan, there will be somebody else. I can promise you. Now, can I go back to sleep? No, no, no. Does it really mean that we are slaves of God? Am I just a slave of the Almighty? And here my pastoral gift came out. Yes, Jonathan, go back to bed. <laughs> the scripture uses the word slave. That's right, you understand. Something extraordinary happens to us, folks, when we realize who's in charge. And what started to repair the house is when God is lifted up. And Isaiah saw him enthroned. 
There's a spark of revival in this place. I've been with you for many years and I've never sensed what I sense tonight. And Pastor Heinrich started to read that prophetic text. There's a spark of revival in this place. I have seen this before. I'll quickly give you a testimony, then I'll finish the sermon. For the last 13 years, I've been involved with a church in Taiwan. And again, I am the worst networker that you've ever met. <clears throat> My introversion is so strong that I have to repent weekly for people that I don't greet at the church. This happens, people write letters about me not greeting. My son will start an Instagram account, I'm sure, about this at some point. This church invited me. I don't even know how I got connected with them, and I don't know how I said yes, and I remember I was in a really foul mood when I finally flew to Taiwan really upset about the fact that I said yes, and I didn't want to go. And when I arrived, it was a tiny little church in a city of about 4 million people, about 300 people in the church. It was the biggest Christian church at that time in that city. And they met in a Buddhist restaurant every Sunday afternoon of all places, right? So I'm preaching. There was something extraordinary about this group. There was the spark of revival. Started by a psychiatrist and an architect. Can you imagine? A psychiatrist and an architect starts a church. I mean, that's like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> there you go. It's an extraordinary thing. I just came back about six weeks ago from my 12th trip to this church. It's 13 years later. This church is now close to 9,000 people in the city. All converts from Confucianism and Taoism. Apart from that, they've planted 63 churches in other places in the world. What's the difference? The difference is they hunger for God and their respect for his word. An extraordinary respect. Every time I go, I say to them, it's too much, nobody's going to come. I went about six weeks ago, I was there, and I was there for five days, and I did 18 services. And this is typical. And you would think nobody would come. That's what I would think. And it just grew and grew and grew in thousands and thousands of these Christians. Come together and, and see God's face. And it leads me to the second point, folks. The vision of God. When we really see God for who he is. Will do something extraordinary for us. It will do something that we are never able to do. It shows us our sin. If there's something the church is desperately in need of, it's for our eyes to be opened. Isaiah said that when he saw the Lord and he saw these seraphim crying out, shouting to one another, screaming, literally the Hebrews say, screaming at one another in terror, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah Crowded, he says, I am lost. I am unclean and I dwell amongst unclean people. What makes the church a holy place is that we know our sin and we know the sin of our people. But the third point here, and this is really a recipe for revival, is that only God can redeem us of that sin. Isn't it fascinating that Isaiah is standing in the temple by the altar of incense, the very place where the sin occurred. Church, there are two areas that we've sinned in as a church globally, in the area of ministry and in the area of worship. In ministry, we have elevated ourselves. We've made names for ourselves. We've become confused whether we are ministers or rock stars. And in worship, we have used the very holy things of God to make ourselves famous. And to have adoring fans. The fact that we can have something called a worship concert. I mean, folks, just think about it for a moment. But it's precisely in those two places where the repair is going to happen. Let me for a few moments just prophetically say to you what I'm seeing. Let me quickly summarize here. Isaiah lives during one of the darkest times in the nation of Judah. Where the very king himself was taken with demonic envy and stepped into the holy of holies and perverted it for his own fame and glory. And God judged him and banished him. Isaiah, as a prophet, stands in the middle, steps forward in the place of offense and opens his eyes and he sees God enthroned. He confesses his own sin and the sin of his people and he allows God to redeem him. And out of this comes this thing, this response, who shall we send? Folks, we are not ready to go until we are cleansed. Let me quickly share with you a deep theological truth. We cannot give what we don't have. Here's another deep theological truth. You've only done it when you've done it. Not when we've spoken about repentance, but when we've done it, when we've lived it. Then we have something to go and share with the nations. There's a movement happening all over the world. There's an extraordinary revival going on in Brazil right now. Folks, it is so large that it's almost impossible to contain. It has almost no leaders. It is just spontaneous happening. Let me speak to you about another secret revival. At the moment in the country of Iran, there are more people coming to the Lord than in any other place in the world right now. And mostly led by women who are going forth and preaching. Missiologists say now, if this trend continues, 
for another five years. What we think is unthinkable might happen. Iran might become a Christian nation. It is the fastest accelerated revival we have seen in almost 200 years. We have to be ready. But there's a movement happening in the world. God is purifying worship. I snuck into a prayer meeting before the service. I was not invited. Just invited myself. I saw the worship team praying and I thought, let me go and join. And there was such a sense of purity and holiness in the prayers that were prayed there. I can rest. We're going to see a turnaround where worship will happen 24-7, but there'll be no names. And there will be no famous people. And it will be pure and it will restore the house of God to what it was supposed to be for his glory and for his glory alone. In church, we're going to see a movement of ministers stand up that will no longer use the platform for their own fame and gain. They'll be honest about their shortcomings. And they will cry out to God for purity and holiness. The repair of the house of the Lord has started. May our eyes be open and may we see the Lord high and lifted up, enthroned in this place. May we join the seraphim and scream to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth. And may our lips be cleansed and our hearts be purified. So that when he says, send me, we will go. Pastor Heinrich, I'm going to ask that you come and complete what you started earlier. I know the Lord has instructions for the next step. God bless you.